continuing to look at the believer's responsibility for godly living. And if you are using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1,215. And we'll also be looking over at Ephesians chapter 1, so you may want to be ready to get there, and, and then some other passages that I'll ask you to look up. But Second Peter chapter 1 and we all will be looking at um, actually verse number six, part of it today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to and privilege to be in your word, to have it available to us, to be able to read it, hear it preached, um, think through it. And then, Holy Spirit, we ask you to allow the Word of God to be practical in our life, that we would be looking at what we're seeing in Scripture in our own life. And I pray as we do that, Lord, um, we would truly uh, bear the benefits that this passage tells us, and that, Lord, because of it, um, when we live this way, your name is glorified. And so bless us today with an understanding of the Word of God, with eyes to see, with ears to hear, and with a will to do your will. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if I were to tell you how to avoid being unproductive in your Christian life, avoid being spiritually short-sighted, avoid forgetting what you have learned so far being a disciple of Jesus Christ, avoid falling on your face spiritually, avoid being unsure of your election, avoid doubting whether you will make it into the kingdom of God, would you want to hear what I have to say? See, that's the question I have. If I then said to you, all those things are obtainable and are yours, all you have to do is put strenuous effort into obtaining them and then to continue to increase in them until the day you leave this earth. So would you consider that a worthy goal? Would you consider it a a legitimate pursuit? And would you be willing to give time and effort in order to be godly? That's what Peter is addressing uh, in this first part of this epistle. So if we are to supply generously to our own faith, the seven qualities that are listed in this passage. And if we add to those qualities, as we grow in our knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ, we will avoid all the downside of the negative results of of being irresponsible in our behavior. Because believers are to be responsible for what they're reading and studying in the Word of God. All of us are. And so that means 
Christians have been given already, it says in the Word of God, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true, true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Because we have that, we saw what God had done for us. Now the scripture is telling us we are to take the human side of our salvation very seriously by putting strenuous effort into our spiritual development. So we Christians, again, must add to what God has given us, increase in it, proceed to grow in it, and then add to our faith the seven qualities. And if you look in verse 5 through 7, here are the seven qualities. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. So these ethical virtues are to be lived out by the Christian, which constitutes ultimately what a godly life is. That This is what Christians are to do. This is what Christians are enabled to do. And of course, this is what Christians are to discipline themselves to do. So we Christians are to lavishly supply to our Christian faith all the virtues until they culminate in the last virtue, which is really love. We are given seven qualities to work out in every avenue and compartment of our life. And they are not to be worked out, remember, all at the same time, but they are to be worked out over a period of time altogether. So the first five appear to be characteristics that grow out of our one's relationship with God, and that would be moral knowledge. Uh, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. And the last two, our relationship represents our relationship to our fellow men, and that would be brother, brotherly kindness and love. So again, just like the Ten Commandments, part the first part, our relationship towards God. Second part, our relationship to people, because that should reflect how we actually deal with people once we have been growing in, in these characteristics. So two starting qualities that are to be added to our faith is moral excellence and knowledge, which we've covered already. And these lay down the foundation of all the rest of them. Faith is being the root from which these virtues will grow. And of the seven qualities we are to grow in, two are foundational qualities and five are directional qualities. And so the scripture calls us to bring every effort to bear upon the process of cultivating our spiritual growth. That is, increase in the image of Christ in our Christian character. And these are the qualities that help to form that image. Now, again, I've already mentioned that when you read passages like this, you say to yourself pretty quickly that this is impossible. This, this can't, we can't do this, right? Well, and that's why he tells us, wait a minute, you can do it because you are participating in the divine nature that God has put in you by his spirit, and so therefore you're not alone to do this. You have all the help of heaven to do this, but God doesn't just tell us that and then it automatically happens. He wants us to put the effort in. 
because we, are, we, are part, we have a relationship with the Lord. We're walking with the Lord. We're learning about the Lord, all right? And every day as we learn about the Lord, we're growing more and more, and you, that should be evident to you. So you're not the same. You shouldn't be the same uh, tomorrow, well, let's say a month from now or a year from now than you are today. You should be different. You should be laying aside the things that God doesn't want in your life anymore. And, some, and those things are not necessarily sinful. They're just not productive. They're not profitable to you. They don't, they don't en- enhance your spiritual growth at all. So those just things you, just, you set aside and you say, I'm just not going to do those things or not spend as much time as I used to spend on certain things that are, are not helpful. All right? I'm, we're heading to eternity. We're heading to the city of God. And so therefore God is preparing us for that very purpose. So the two foundational qualities, which I've mentioned, I've already talked through already, but I'll just mention them now. Verse number five, the first one, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence into your moral excellence knowledge. So the first one was moral excellence, and that really can also be translated the quality of the goodness of God that we learn from God that can be demonstrated in our living and good habits formed, and also fleshly desires discarded from us. So we are to be people who have honorable behavior, not just the absence of bad habits, but a pursuit of what is morally right. And of course, moral excellence, one has said, is the state achieved whereby the soul operates on the level of goodness. So Christians are able to live out their virtuous life, not because of our own efforts alone, but because of the life of Christ in our soul. And that's what makes us different. That's what makes somebody who just professes Christ and nothing changes in their life, and they really just have religion, to those who have trusted Christ and have the Spirit of God and the word of God, and now they are different. I think any honest Christians could say, you know what? The day I trusted Christ, everything changed, right? Everything changed. My whole worldview changed because of Christ. And I think as we go along, if you, somebody was pushed in the corner and, and after growing in the Lord and being a Christian for a while, and you said to them, listen, would you deny Jesus today? I think any... Christian would say, no way, I am not going back, I'm going forward, right? And if that means that may be your last day, well then so be it, right? I think God brings us to that place and he gives us the grace if that ever happened to us to be able to do what we need to do. We're not going to deny Christ because we know Christ is our treasure. Christ is, is the one who gave his life for us He's the one who demonstrated love for us first, and then we love him. We didn't love God before. Don't fool yourselves, right? You did not. I did not. I thought I did, but I did not. But now I'm learning to, and so are you. So this moral excellence is really part of the handiwork of God's goodness in our life, where everywhere we look, we see God's goodness in creation We see it in his laws, in his providences. Uh, God cannot otherwise be good. 
that otherwise, he's, he's got to be good. That's who he is. God is good. So we learn goodness by keeping our eyes on Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. And so goodness is controlled by the second foundational quality, and that's knowledge. Right? We have to grow. God does not by- bypass our mind. He actually makes our mind come alive. Right? We, we understand things we never understood before. We see the world as it should be. We know that there's a hope and a future for us, even when it comes to death that is so elusive to try to define what happens after death, we can actually preach messages about what's going to happen after death because the Bible tells us so, right? Now, we don't know all the details, but we have enough that God wants us to know on this side of eternity to be able to have a hope that that death is a doorway into God's presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See, that gives us the strength to be able to live another day. Even, the, even, even in the difficulties of life. So we are to add to our faith knowledge. And this knowledge is this word gnosis, which really means knowledge that is not necessarily complete yet. It is a growing knowledge. It is a knowledge in which we are stimulated in our, in our mind intellectually and our appetites come alive where we have a spiritual appetite for things we never had before, and this knowledge definitely includes knowledge of Christ, but it also includes wisdom and discernment that go with knowledge. It it includes the practical part of once we're learning the Word of God, it, it, it moves into practical action. It's not just cold theology. It's it's just not just it's not just theory. Uh, it's actual practical stuff that I can do in my life and that you can do in your life. So the scripture is really stressing an imperative for living life well. And it is, it's this, if, that, if we are going to finish life well, we must know God. All right. So the knowledge is really going to be based on knowing who God is. We must work, get to work on knowing God because that is the pathway that leads to home, which tells us in verse number 11 of chapter 1, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So again, the Lord, this Lord's Day, we'll take a look at the first of the five directional qualities. Now, this next quality will set us on the right path. That's why it's a directional quality. It will set us on the right path. It will give us clear direction on the way we should go, the way we should walk. And the first functional, the first, excuse me, directional quality is found in verse number six. And it says, in your knowledge, self-control. And then, of course, in your self-control, perseverance, which I'll look at next time. I really want to focus in on adding to your faith self-control. Now, this word literally means to hold oneself in. The root word means power and strength. In other passages, this term 
is used like in Ephesians chapter 1, which I'd like you to turn back to that. Ephesians chapter 1, in verse number 15, in Ephesians 1, verse 15, it says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. In verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And then verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and then verse number 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now, let me just end, just stop right there in Ephesians because the word there is the same word that Peter uses in 2 Peter, and it means supernatural activity or energy or the operation of one upon us. And with what power, the question would be, are we trying to resist temptation? What power are we using to put off hindrances or besetting sins or to develop a godly character, or to bear spiritual fruit, what kind of power are we using? We can't just use our own, because it's not going to take place just with our own. But here the Bible is saying this power has been given to us. The fact is that sin is the one of the greatest powers in the world. No method or power from us or from our world can overcome it. Only the almighty power of God working in the lives of those who seek seek this power from and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians don't really have to struggle vainly over victory over their sin but it should instead seek God's power in prayer and, of course, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. So surely this should quicken our hope. It should enable us to appreciate our inheritance that we have, and, of course, it should strengthen us to maintain against every enemy, every hindrance, every obstacle in our path, and it could be overcome in God's power. That's why it says in verse number 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? So God is not doing this towards everyone. He's only doing it to us who believe, those who are in Christ. So you and I used to be in spiritual darkness. We used to be dead in trespasses and sin, but now we are Alive, we're quickened, right? We're quickened, we're made alive, and in Ephesians, our hearts are opened, and the prayer that is being offered here is that this light would be flooded into our soul to give us understanding. Now, 
If you go back to Ephesians chapter, uh, over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 5, we get this passage of scripture that says, even when you were dead, even when we were dead in our transgressions, that's our sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now, I hope you heard what I said there. The very fact that you and I are believers, if you are a believer, is solely a demonstration of God's might. Many things had to be overcome. Many things had to be conquered by the strength of God in order for you and me to become believers. For example, our flesh had to be overcome. Why did that have to be overcome? Because Paul said to us in Romans chapter 8, verse number 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Not only hostile, it is not even subject to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So who can overcome our flesh? Only God can do that. See, we know, we know that now, but we need to continue to know that, that even now as we grow in the Lord, we still have, need the power of God to overcome our remaining sin, the remaining corruption that's in the world. Second thing that has to be overcome is the devil himself. He is a real power. He is a real being. He is a fallen angel. I guess you could say that his power is second only to that of God in this world. He is the God of the world. That's what it says in Corinthians chapter 4. In, who, in whose case, the God of this world, what, it, what has he done? He's blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, it is only by the exceeding greatness of God's power that he can be overcome. What about the world itself, the system in which we live that's pounding against us every single day? The subtle power of worldliness with its lusts and its desires that are, are opposed to God. The regular influences that fall upon us by the endless flow of books and films and blogs and all the inroads those have into our lives by complex uh, technologies of our day. Now, you know and I know when we're surfing the web, and we're finding things that we want to find, algorithms are being designed just for you. Did you know that? They are tracking everything you do. They have all the information they need about you. They are mapping out your likes and your dislikes, your wants and your desires. And then they are formulating advertisements in order to entice you to further indulge yourself in endless gratification. And that's what we could do today. We can spend all day surfing the web, searching this out and that out. All right? Before you know it, you're taking your credit card out, you're buying something you don't need. All right? And that's what and they're good at it. They know exactly what to mark. You ever have somebody put your name on Facebook and then all of a sudden because you're one of their friends, you have now an advertisement in your mailbox about possibly one of the things they were searching out. 
So the world knows how to get their message out. And they know how to entice people. They've done their homework. And, of course, behind all that is Satan himself. So it's power to please and entertain and entice the natural man and ultimately to blur the lines of what truth and error are, even to dictate what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior, what is real and what is fantasy, and if they can blur those lines, then they will get your mind, and they will control you. The scripture says, don't love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world and the love loves the world, the love of the Father is not him in, in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life are not from God. They're not from the Father. But they're just in the world because the world are, is controlled by sinful people. And sinful people are going to promote and put money behind the things that they want and a particular culture wants. Nice people are kept in darkness and lulled, lulled into st the stupor of false teaching and false living and false practices because they're just following what the system of the world is already doing. And it is good at advertising what they want you to do. So even Christians come under the subtle power of the world, which really is really trying to lure them away from devotion to Christ. Now, what, I, what I'm really stressing here is the difficulty there is in believing. If it were not for the power of God to cause us to be born again, none of us could be saved or be able to live the Christian life. We would not be able to stand for one moment. That's what Paul, that's what Peter said in his first epistle when I was back there. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 3, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to what? Be born again. And then he says this, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. If it was not God's power, not only would we not be able to be saved, we would not be able to stay saved. God has to do that. So believers have the power working in them. If it were not for the power of God working in believers... We would not have a desire to read the word of God, a desire to pray, the strength to put off sin and put on righteousness, or be strong in the Lord in the spiritual battle, and so on and so forth. So you see, the apostle in Ephesians is not praying that believers see their need of this power, nor that he, is he praying that the believer have more power, but he is praying that believers would realize the greatness of the power of God that is already working in them. Philippians tells us this, 
For it is God who is at work where? In us. He's at work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God's already doing that. You don't really have to pray for it. It's already there. You now have to just live it out. So how great is that power? How much strength is available for the Christian in this daily life, this daily living out our Christian faith? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 tells us, it says, for these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That we too often think of the Christian life solely in terms of knowing that we are forgiven, and then we tend to live the Christian life the best way we can after that. That This is altogether incorrect thinking. Because it is impossible to live the Christian life in our own strength. You see, by nature, not one of us would or could believe the gospel. Nothing but the power of God can make us believers. But it's also this self-same power that we continue in the Christian life. And it is the power connected to what God had to do to raise Christ from the dead and to raise you and I to spiritual life. Right? That's what he's done. So believers are being urged to depend on this power and to realize the inexhaustible source of the strength, you can never run out of it because it comes from God. And he prays that we may know fully and may appropriate personally and may learn by experience the measureless might and exceeding greatness of the power which God is exerting towards those who believe. So if you're a person who has believed, then you already have the power of God to be able to live out what Scripture asks you to live out. It's already there, and you can never exhaust it. It's always available to you. All right, now, let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 6, because I said all that for this reason, that you and I are to be growing in this quality of self-control that the Christian has available to them because they participate in the divine nature, the power to control and stabilize their lives. Now, just think of this. Controlling one's passions and desires instead of them controlling you. In other words, you're in control. God says you're in control. Self-control is the ability to put aside your own desire and take a grip of yourself and all your passions so that your passions and desires are now your servants. Sin is no longer your master. You are the master of yourself. Now, I'm saying that in a biblical sense. This is not a motivational message. So you make your passions and desires your servants. In other words, they are no longer your masters. They are no longer your tyrants. They are no longer calling the shots. 
Why? Because God's transforming your mind to know what you ought to do and then to do it. All right? So don't forget, your mind obtains knowledge, but that knowledge just, just should not lay in your brain as, or it goes one, out, one ear and out the other, but it, it moves down to your will. It moves your will. And your will is what you do. So the Word of God, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, directing and informing your passions and desires, instead of the old sinful nature, the, instead of the world system, instead of demonic enticements, you're informing and in control of your own will because God's given you the power to now have self-control. Well, what does it say in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22? It's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, right? It says there, it says, For the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and what? Self-control. Against such things there is no law. When Paul wrote and gave us the epistle of Titus, he said to the older men, be hospitable, loving, what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. He told the older women so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible. Same word. The word sensible means to be sound of mind and self-controlled. So that's what the older women are to teach the younger women, to be self-controlled, to be pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So everywhere you go, you cannot get away from the fact that when you become a believer, you are now in control of yourself. You have no, we have no excuse that we're not. So we can't make excuses about the things that we should not be doing that we are doing or the things that we should be doing that we're not doing. Romans tells us, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will experience the life of Christ in your life by these qualities becoming much clearer and more evident, not only in seeing them, but in wanting to do them. And then, of course, the wisdom book of Proverbs tells us this. In Proverbs 16, verse 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who conquers the city. Another proverb, another point of wisdom in the Old Testament, it says this in Proverbs 25, 28, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Of course, a city who's broken has broken walls. Is easy, it's easy to attack, right? It's easy to take it over. It's easy to control the people who live there. But if you have walls up, 
the wall of self-control up, it's very hard for someone to control you. There's an interesting narrative in the book of Acts that I want you to turn to. Acts chapter 24. As I was studying this and looking at this, I was saying, this is an incredible narrative. Because in this narrative, this is when Paul is standing before Felix and giving his testimony. And of course, every time Paul, the Apostle Paul gave his testimony, he always brought the gospel in, right? But I want you to notice how he preaches the gospel to Felix. In Acts chapter 24, look at verse 24. And then what I want you to do, I'm going to look at it in a reverse direction. This is what it says in verse number 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. But as he was discussing, here's Paul's laying out of the gospel. He was discussing righteousness, right? Now, what does that mean? It had to be right with God, right? You don't, you're not right with God by your own righteousness, but you have to have another's righteousness, right? And then look at the second thing, self-control. Say, so why, why is that there? Because when somebody becomes a believer in Christ Jesus, one of the first things that they begin to recognize in their life is that they have self-control, and that means they're responsible for their life. Before, look at the third thing yeah, he preaches to them, and judgment to come. So here's the gospel. The righteousness of Christ, self-control, once you're a believer in this world, responsible to God, and judgment to come, you'll stand before God one day and give an account on how you lived your life. Well, look at how Felix responds. Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present. When I find time, I will summon you. Now, it's interesting that Felix was controlled by fear. Look at the second thing it says, verse 26. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. So here's the second thing that Felix is controlled by, money. He's not listening to the message. He's controlled by fear. He's controlled by money, which, of course, means that he would be controlled by greed. And then notice also in verse 27, but after two years had passed, Felix had, was succeeded by Porcus Festus, and it says there, wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So you know what else he was controlled by? Prestige and power. So Felix's desires and passions were not controlled by himself, even though he may have thought they were. His 
Desires and passions were controlled by fear, by greed, and by power. See, that is the opposite of what happens for a believer. A believer is not controlled by any of those things anymore. It doesn't mean they don't struggle with them, but they begin to lay those things aside. So putting it all together, this means you, the Christian, participating in the divine nature, are able to control yourself. That means the greatest feelings you have, the strongest desires and cravings that you have, the powerful passions that you have, you can control them with wise control without giving in to the strongest urges. When the direction of the believer's life is in accord with practicing self-control, he or she will avoid falling prey to all kinds of temptations. So self-control is connected to the temptations that you're going to be tempted with in this life and in this world. And don't, don't misunderstand. This has no connection at all to what psychology calls behavior modification. Anyone can make modifications in their behavior if they want to. They can stop smoking, and they can stop overeating, and they can stop spending, and they can stop drinking, and they can stop taking drugs. People do this all the time. The Bible is talking about something else. It's talking about transformation. Whereas these seven qualities are worked out in every avenue and compartment of the Christian's life in which they are growing in all at the same time. The Spirit of God is developing in us the image of Christ, and we, the Christian, are cooperating with him to pursue that goal. So, This is the opposite of what false teachers are teaching, which Peter is going to get to in our text. And turn back to 2 Peter again, and I want you to notice that he is writing these things for the believer to be able to stand up against the pressure that's going to come against them through what people are calling true teaching, which is actually false teaching. And look what he says, that, False teachers believed that following their own lust and showing no restraint were signs of maturity. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. It says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. So for the false teacher in verse 2, freedom in Christ is to follow their own sensuality, not the truth. To follow their own passions, not the truth. And then look at 2 Peter 2, verse 18 and 19. It says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while... They themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So the lure of the false teachers is to bring a person into their world 
And that is how someone can live their best life now. That if you fulfill your passions and desires, the ones that you want, then that's what you ought to be doing in this world. And then in chapter 3, verse number 3 of 2 Peter, it says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. What will they be following? Notice, following after their own lusts. So freedom in Christ is to follow their own lusts, not the truth. And see, this is the danger of false teaching because they're not packaging it as false teaching. They're packing, packing putting it uh, into a container and, and giving it out as truth. That's, that's what they're doing. So false teachers actually are feeding the strongest urges of the fallen nature. And what are they? To be wealthy, to be healthy, to be prosperous. It is interesting that Paul uses the term, the same word for strength and power that he's been using for the Christian. He says in 2 Timothy, you don't have to turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he uses it in a negative sense, and you, you know the passage because uh, if you've been reading your Bible, it's the very one that we always seem to go to. It says, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control. So we live in a day that not only there is there abundance of false teaching packaged as truth, but we also live in a day in these last days where people do not have self-control. They are powerless to control themselves. So that's where we live. But for the believer, we are to grow in this characteristic of self-control. Now, it was Jesus who said, if you want to enter, if you don't want to enter into temptation, you must be diligent to actually develop certain characteristics. One of the characteristics says you have to be watchful. Jesus says, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's always the case. The spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. So the apostle Peter uses, in 1 Peter, the word to be on the alert, to be awake, to be watchful, not to be dull, don't be sleepy, don't be lazy. That Christians are exempt, or actually Christians are not exempt from the duty of being vigilant, being on the alert. being constantly ready. Another way he put it is to gird up your mind. And to gird up your mind means you don't move through life with loose thoughts that are lazily moved by just impulse and passions, drifting this way and that way as as occasions dictate. Instead, the girded mind means the mind is made up. The mind has decisive thoughts. It has made decisions already. It knows the direction that their life should take. 
So the sober mind is a calm mind. It's a steady mind. It's a sensible mind. It's a balanced mind. A spiritually balanced Christian can maintain self-control and spiritual sanity. Why could... What what does a sane person look like? A a sane person looks like this. They they see things in their proper order and portion. They see what things are important, what things are not important. They're not swept away by sudden and passing enthusiasm. They are not prone to unbalanced fanaticism. They know in what they believe, and they know in whom they believe. They see affairs of this life in light of eternity. Their eyes are fixed on the goal. They give the Lord Jesus proper place in all things. They have a heart fixed on God. They have minds unintoxicated with the forms and structures of this world. They know that they are in Christ. They know where they are heading. They know what to do while on this earth heading towards heaven. They are watchful. They are aware. They are self-controlled. It is very difficult to convince a person who's self-controlled to do other than what they already decided to do. Jesus said a second thing is that with watchfulness goes prayerfulness. Keep praying that you may not come into temptation is the second thing he says about avoiding temptation because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. So self-control is the discipline to to be able to restrain one's desires and follow through on doing what is right even when it is difficult. And of course, there's another thing that's mentioned right in 2 Peter that goes along with that, that Jesus didn't mention, but the scriptures mentioned, not only are we to be watchful and prayerful, but we are to take the way of escape. What does it say already in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4? For by these, it says, he has granted to us his precious and magnif- magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of, that is in the world by lust. It means to flee. It means to get out of the area. To run is a way you can say that. So self-control or somebody who is holding themselves in, some believe also this is in specifically in the matters related to sex and greed because that's what Second Peter, the false teachers, seem to focus on. And the Bible's best advice in dealing with temptation, all kinds of temptation, is to what? You know what it is? To run from it. To flee from it. In other words, put as much distance between you and the source of temptation as possible. Don't ever feed it. Don't allow it to get control of your imagination where you're thinking about it. Paul says this, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then he says this, but flee from these things, you man of God. 
But he doesn't just say flee. He always says if you're going to flee from something, pursue something else. You can't leave a vacuum. And this is what he says. Flee those things that you're being tempted. Who's not tempted with wealth? Who's not tempted with having more money than you have now? Who's not tempted with being comfortable? Having the best things you can have. Everybody's tempted with that. Nobody can get away from that. Because as soon as those things that you desire start being taken away, then you say, hey, what's going on here? He says, listen, flee those things, you man of God, and pursue what? Righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. It's the same kind of list that the apostles use everywhere. Listen, don't go that way. Go this way. Don't take that road. Take this road. And that's what a Christian already knows to do. So lingering in the vicinity of the power and lure of the source of temptation is to sin is really foolishness. Don't, don't act a fool. The apostle Peter uses the same word to describe those who barely escape from becoming slaves of the lust of human society. If you look right there in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So obviously, when I get there, I'll explain that a little bit more, but who are those who barely escape? Is there an example in Scripture? Yeah, I believe there is. The example is Lot, Abraham and Lot. Right? What, what happened a lot? Lot lived in Sodom, right? In Sodom, the city of Sodom, there was pollution, there was pornography, there was sexual perversion, there was homosexuality, there was probably everything else there, and it was part of an acceptable lifestyle in that city. He lived among fearful corruption. And Lot did not flee. But God rescued him. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 7. It says this, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. You know what you say? Lot, why didn't you get out? Why didn't you leave? I mean, Abraham already rescued you once. Why did you go back? There's no reason for us to be tormented by lawlessness and corruption. We can actually do something about it. And Lot, of course, did not remain uncontaminated because soon he ended up drunk and dishonored on a hill overlooking the smoldering ruins of the vile city where he had made his home and raised his family. So self-control. over anger, over hatred, over anxiety, over negativity, over selfishness, over a multitude of other sins, 
These are all part of the old nature. And believers have the control to live out the nature of God and not live out the corrupt life that this present evil world offers. So a Christian's participation in the divine nature gives believers a new ability to resist sin through the through union with Christ and the indwelling spirit in which the desire of the flesh is weakened and the desire to obey the Holy Spirit of God is strengthened to which they desired to live a holy life in all the pattern of their lifestyle. So in other words, we resist and flee the temptation and God rescues us from the temptation. We flee, God rescues. We flee, God rescues. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. See, in other words, that's how God cooperates with us when we are resisting the sin, when we are resisting the temptation, he comes in and rescues us from it. Right? That's what he does. That's what he does. And that's the promise that we actually have as believers, that we are to add to our faith self-control. So are you controlling yourself? Are you in control? Or are you still guided by your passions and desires? The old ones. You should have new ones. And the new ones should be stronger than the old ones. Because God has given you everything you need to participate in life and godliness. If I say to a teenager, how do you know, how do you know when you fled from temptation? Now, of course, it can apply to anybody, but I'm picking out the teenager. So, so it, it would be when the world is your goal and your friends are your masters. That's how you know. And I think the teenager, you would know when you are when you're in school and, and when your mates, your classmates are living as close to the world and its system as possible in the way they dress and the music they listen to and the attitudes they have and the goals they have in their life. And you say in your heart, all my friends are doing it. They are pursuing these activities and relationships. I want to follow them. What are you really saying when you say that? What you're really saying is that I have given up my goal. I'm talking about somebody who believes they're a believer as a teenager. I'm giving up my goal. I want to be spiritually asleep. I want to have a good time, and I think that's the way to have a good time. So at that point, at that point of thinking, it becomes apparent it becomes very apparent that the world's corruption is your goal and your friends are your masters. So Peter is saying to those learning to follow Christ, begin to control yourself. Say no to ungodly passions. Grow up 
Get on your feet. Pick up your faith. Do what is right. Increase in your knowledge of God for your own salvation's sake. Begin to control yourself. And that is in all areas of the Christian life. Every passion, every desire you have, you have full authority over it. So you may have to ask the Holy Spirit today to reveal to you characteristics of the culture that he wants out of your life. Old default sins that you quickly go to, whatever it may be, he wants out of your life. Because now you have all the knowledge in Christ, and you have all the power from heaven to not do that anymore. So you have to pledge your cooperation with the Holy Spirit in conforming your life to Christ and not to the culture and not to your old sinful ways. And then you want to do this too so it's not all negative. Look at the positive transformations that the God has actually done in your life. If you can honestly say, I am not the person I used to be, that is a good thing. Because it's not all you. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not having willpower. That's not it. It's God's divine nature and you cooperating with God's doing in your life, using his power and your effort to make you like Christ. See, that is a good thing. And you can, pr you can praise the Lord for that and know that if you continue on that path, you will not be, as I started off the message, you will not be at all whatsoever unsure of your election. You will not be unproductive in your Christian life. You will not be spiritually short-sighted. You will not forget what you've been learning. You will not fall on your face spiritually, and you will know you're going to enter into the kingdom of God someday. That is a given, and that's a surety that God gives us if these things are added to your faith. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. Lord, your word is awesome. What it reveals about ourself is so detailed and, and so clear. Lord, thank you that this passage of Scripture is there for us, for our own learning and edification. And we just ask you today, Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves. That if there's anything at all in our life that remains something that doesn't please you or uh, something that should not remain, whether it be sinful or not, that we would, by the control you give us uh, and the spirit, the power and, uh, you give us to have self-control, we would put it out of our life. And every day we would practice it till it's gone. Until our passions become your passions and our desires become your desires. And I pray this this morning in the precious and most holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.